1: Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation.
2: Hello, good morning. This is Ellie Weiss and Wild Eyes Foundation, and welcome to Our Wild World and our episode Elephant in the Room Part Two, where we have two very special guests today. Travis Fulton, and Vladimir Van Malle, the production and ground crew who have just returned from Kenya are in the final stages of editing the film – Good morning, Travis and Vladimir. Thank you for joining in with me today to discuss this exciting project. I'm so sorry that Kira is unable to join us today, but as she's busy in Nairobi, we understand the life of a wildlife filmmaker is always full of surprises. But I'll bet between the three of us, we have plenty to talk about. Let's start with you, Travis. You're the executive producer of Elephant in the Room. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you came to create the concept concept for this film and why you contacted Wild Eyes?
3: I'm a sculptor by profession. And um, ever since the age of five, I've been making animal sculptures and bar reliefs and drawings. And I've always um, had a dog or a raccoon or a, a rabbit or three or four horses. And uh have always been very interested in um, in animals and being out in the wilderness myself. Um, several years ago, I took a horseback trip, a safari horseback trip, for two weeks across the Maasai Mara and became um, deeply immersed in the question of wildlife and its relationship to the uh, African savanna. Um, after the horseback trip, I got together with a friend David Allen, who is a pilot of a 206 in Kenya, and we flew down to Lamu and up to Elephant Watch Camp and visited uh, Ian and um, Douglas, um, Hamilton Douglas Hamilton and, yeah. and uh, his wife Aurea, and I went out with them on many expeditions to look at um, the naming of elephants and what they were doing and writing in the book about all the different families. And I became somewhat conversant in the problems that uh, that they face. And since then, I have um, kept my ear to the ground and just been fascinated by what we can all do in our own little way um, to help the situation, which is grave.
2: Yeah, that it most certainly is. So when you say the problems that they face, do you mean both, or one or the other, the elephants, the problems the elephants are facing, or the problems the people are facing, or the problems people like um, Save the Elephants and Ian Douglas Hamilton and the ranchers are facing? Well,
3: of course, all of, all of the above. Um, but I suppose that I saw um, on my trips up there and talking to Ian and Oria when they were here in America... And keeping in contact with him through a John McBride and other friends, that there are—it's a double-pronged problem and, in, in a sense, possible solution. And you have the supply side of the ivory, and you have the demand side, and sort of like the drug problem. If you can stop people wanting drugs, then you can perhaps slow down the uh, the, uh, the production of them. Well, so. that's
2: great, because we're going to get into that in a little bit, but in the meantime, I'd like to introduce Vladimir, who is the <laughs> Director of Photography and Cameraman. And Vladimir, can you tell us a bit about yourself and background in why making this film, The Elephant in the Room, and the ivory and uh, plight of elephants is important to you?
4: Okay, well, thank you very much, and uh, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to be here and... Uh, it, um, you know, a few years ago, I was in South Africa on a commercial project, and uh, in filming in South Africa, we, uh, part of the filming was about elephants, and that was my first introduction to the problem of poaching, and uh, you know, we came back and life went on. Basically, I produce television commercials, so I'm immersed in, in the world of you know, selling products and uh, services of paying clients. And to maintain sanity, I decided years ago that I will at least once a year do a project on my own or something that's worth it or something that makes sense for me. Um, money, profits notwithstanding. And so when Travis called with this idea, I said immediately, you know, count me, in. I'm on board. This is, it's, uh, it's an important issue and it's, you know, it'll be something worth doing. So that's how well, that came I- about.
2: Well, I thank you so much. And, um, and of course, Travis, for contacting Wild Eyes. That's a bit of a story in itself. Um, we had a big fundraiser with Tony Fitzjohn and Travis arrived for this event and we sort of met each other by sheer accident. And uh, it was after this fundraiser that Travis approached me and Wild Eyes with this incredible concept of a short film called The Elephant in the Room, which we discussed a bit last week on our episode, some of the background in the history and what the plight and... Uh, issue is around elephants, and Travis touched on that a minute ago. It's it's an issue between supply and demand, and Vladimir touched on it in terms of consumerism and uh, consumption. So we're making this film to try and highlight the issue that the consumption of ivory is affecting live elephant populations. And there is no way to get ivory without killing elephants. Um, So without giving away the viewer experience, because our film has not yet been released, I know we've all been working incredibly hard over the last week um, creating the final draft for this film, Uh, Can you, Travis and Vladimir, give our listeners a brief description of the film and what is the hard-hitting yet poignant message we hope to accomplish with this film, both visually and in text or statements? Uh, uh, Vladimir or Travis, either one of you can go
4: first. I'd like to uh, address this quickly enough because um, when you go on YouTube or Vimeo or any of the social media platforms and you see videos and documentaries and promotional and PSAs about this issue of killing elephants. There's actually many. And some are better than others and they all sort of have this very, you know, graphic description of the carnage and they all have very heart and you know heartfelt ending of we must do something. But it doesn't seem to offer specific, you know, solution. Mm -hmm. And when Travis sent me the script, and it completely blew me away because it is so unlike anything that's out there. And I refer to it as a childlike, you know, it's a beautiful little story that has no blood or gore. It is a tiny little fairy tale. And uh, anybody who read the script from our colleagues in the States to our colleagues overseas and in Kenya, the reaction of everyone was the same. They say this is great. We love it. (laughs) So... I thought we were on a, on, a, on a good track to, you know, something that could be successful.
2: And Travis?
3: Well, I, I kept on thinking that there must be some way of getting inside the Chinese mind. Um, and, um, of course, this is uh, highly controversial as to you know, whether or not someone can move into the, another culture's um, psyche. But, you know, this is what literature and filmmaking and art are really all about, is communication. So, thinking about how to gracefully introduce perhaps a new concept or a tradition, perhaps urging people to maybe replace um, the, the way the Hindus have the cow as a sacred animal. Perhaps we can start thinking about Chinese maybe having the elephant, and maybe many other animals, or maybe even the planet itself is a sacred animal, just the same way perhaps we could try to do this ourselves, and that was the origin of the the gentle approach that I attempted to um, to script
2: well i 'd say your attempt has been incredible. I personally and my foundation. We're totally taken with the concept, as Vladimir was talking about. It is not exactly a fantasy, but it is more of a dreamlike sequence of what could be. And I don't want to give away anything about the film, because it will be released soon, and I'll, I'll we'll come to that later, of when and how and where people will see it, and how we'll be coordinating that. But um, you went through quite some, uh, uh, and Vladimir began to touch on some of the different responses you've encountered from uh, your various colleagues. Uh, what were the, some of the responses that you received in trying to make this film happen in a very short period of time on the ground in Kenya? There was quite some procedures you all had to go through. And Travis, uh, you as a sculptor created two absolutely fabulous, beautiful, beautiful, ivory tusks made out of wood, which you brought from the U.S. to Kenya, which could have ended up in sort of um, um, a bit of a, a hot spot, bringing what looked like ivory into the hotbed of uh, the ivory trade. Did you encounter any um, interesting problems or excitement on the ground in Kenya?
3: Well, it was sort of funny. When we got there, um, we had wired ahead to um, the people that issued our film licenses to let the customs know that we were bringing them in, but they, that never happened. So when we got to the customs shed in the Nairobi airport, um, the first lady that opened the, the, the crate had this incredibly sour, worried, terrified expression on her face, and she backed up with her hands in front of her and said, I'm not dealing with, with this, <laughs> and uh, which brought about 15 policemen and um, and other customs officials over, and they all looked at them and they said, "What what, what are you doing, bringing ivory into this country?" Just, and they were just horrified. Um, and I said, "They are made out of wood. They're painted to look like real the real thing, but if you pick one up, you'll see that it's about one third the, the the weight of uh, of a real tusk." So and I also had pictures of the building of them, the making of them, the gluing and the carving and the shaping and the painting of them. And they so everyone crowded around and then I took out uh, my pocket knife from the crate of course I could, didn't have it in my pocket uh and cut a little bit out of the paint of the inside of the end of the of the uh one of the tusks so they could see that it actually was wood and everybody just started to really enjoy this. And they, uh, had Vladimir and me sign the, the photographs and, uh, write on there a brief description of what we were doing. And they got interested in the idea of the film. And so we were, um, we were happily escorted out rather than detained. And um, that, the,
2: that's, a, that's an amazing experience because it could have gone very badly. I've spent. 20 years going through uh, customs in Nairobi. And um, what I'm hearing in your story is that we turned what could have been a really ugly situation and one that raises a lot of tempers and fear on the ground um, with people who are not necessarily conservationists. They're just doing their jobs into something that brought smiles and agreement and a willingness to cooperate and make this happen.
4: If I could add uh, a little story that that followed, we eventually ended up in the Savo East Park and as part of our protocol we had to go and introduce ourselves to the warden of the park. And, uh, so we came into this complex and it is somewhat of a military feeling to it and we walk into this gentleman's office and it's you know, oak furniture and the old sort of English flavour and behind this opulent desk sits this man who six foot five, you know, in a military fatigue, you know, and he looked like ready to, you know, eat some men for breakfast. And he was cordial enough, but he was definitely a stern looking gentleman. And he said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And then Travis explained, shot by shot, what the film is about. At the end of maybe you know one or two minute presentation, there was a huge smile on the warden's face, and he slapped the table and he says, "This is great! Who came up with this?" <laughs> and we said, "Oh, Travis did." He said, "This is great." So then he went on to proceed to tell the our vet, our veterinarian, to work with us and uh, do whatever you know. It was necessary for us to get what we needed, as far as the elephants and uh, we actually took him outside and and when he held the tusk in his hand, he was completely blown away. so just to illustrate how the story that Travis came up with turns people from not adversaries but certainly you know not necessarily caring into huge fans you know in a matter of a minute, so it was very good to see.
2: Well, right there is, you know, accomplishing a major part of what conservation is trying to do, bringing people of opposite sides of the camps and opposite sides of the fence together, so to speak, so that we can all be a part, as Travis and both of you had said, in making a small but significant change.
3: Um, Well, one of the things that's happening here is some little backup story uh, about networking. Um, I grew up in a little town in Connecticut. And um, one of the people that I went to school with from kindergarten through ninth grade was Bill Clark. He um, uh, works for Interpol, the international crime fighting outfit. And when he heard about this story, he contacted me and asked me what he, what he could do. And I said, we need it, um, to film an elephant getting up. Well, they don't lie down during the day, so you can't really film them getting up. And we didn't want one getting up out of a... Out of a mud wallow we wanted one looking like it was dead and getting up from that recumbent position so he said I can help that's
2: pretty incredible. We have about uh, one minute until our first break, and then we're going to come back, and I would love for you to pick up the story, and that will sort of tie into, maybe without destroying the viewer experience, a little bit of how this film is going to work. Vladimir gave us a bit of a tease that it's kind of a dream sequence, childlike fantasy, and you're giving us some really tantalizing details of the actual um uh, efforts that were required to put in place to make this happen. So we'll take a, bre- a very short break right now, and we'll be right back and pick up with Travis Fulton and Vladimir Van Male, and stay tuned for our Wild World. <laughs>
1: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.
2: And welcome back. We're here with Travis Fulton and Vladimir Vladimir Van Maul. Is that correct, Vladimir? That's correct. Okay, I was mispronouncing it earlier. And we left off with Travis starting to tell us a bit of a story, which um, we're talking about the making of the short film, The Elephant in the Room. So, Travis, pick up with that story.
3: Um, it's, a, it's a story involving Interpol, who has been hugely helpful. Uh, Bill Clark has had for Interpol the, the African continent as his uh, bailiwick for the last decade or more. And um, and one of the things that he's been, two of the things that he's been seriously concerned with are the ivory poaching and the bushmeat problem. Um, people go out and they shoot anything that they can you know, find in the sight of, sights of a rifle or at the end of a spear, and they often sell the meat to uh, a local butcher. And the butcher just, if he has learned that if he's, if he takes out the, out the bone and takes off any skin or hide or hair, then no one can tell actually what the meat is. So, um, Interpol gave to Kenya well over a million dollars worth of DNA testing equipment, and so they're setting up sort of um, little labs around the country so that the inspectors can take a piece of meat and within a very short time tell exactly from what animal it comes. That means that if the butcher has, is trying to sell something that's illegal, uh, they can confiscate it and fine him. Now, this won't stop the bushmeat problem completely, but it will certainly slow it down. And um, the Kenyan Wildlife Service, KWS, is wildly appreciative of Bill Clark and Interpol. And so when Bill Clark said, I know the head vet of Kenyan Wildlife Service, and I'll call him and ask him to help you within two hours. Uh the good doctor, Francis Gukaya Kakuya, uh wrote me back and said he'd be delighted to uh help um, our little film uh become an actuality. Um, so we arrived in Kenya with this very important um, piece of the puzzle of how to get a um, film a short film of an elephant getting up. If
4: I could just Interject something momentarily. Just sure. to set the stage. To film in any foreign countries for American crew is always a bit of a project. From getting the equipment in, getting permits. But in Kenya, it is it is truly a project. It is quite expensive to get the get the permits, and it is um, a bureaucratic ritual that another agency has to be hired and they handle all the permits and uh, to get people. To cooperate and to help out is very difficult, regardless of how much what the fee is that you pay them. So, and before Bill Clark surfaced, we actually spent if not several weeks working through other contacts <clears throat> through our uh, associate Kira Goodall, who's not here right now with us, but our associate from Nairobi, who through the context of her own was trying to help us, and it all was inching forward, but very, very slowly, and it looked like. You know, to be honest, it didn't look that promising. And all of a sudden, Bill Clark pops up on the scene, and two hours later, we have basically, not carte blanche, but all of a sudden the door has opened. So, <laughs> right. Yes,
2: through 20 years of experience of working on the ground in Africa and wonderful, wonderful people every now and then it does have uh, its perks and benefits to know somebody who can help you weave through the red, the bureaucratic red tape
3: well, especially on a project Kara, like Kara this. has been uh, not just an associate but a partner in all this. She films mostly the, she's concerned with the people of, of, of these countries in, in East Africa. And uh, she's done many films about the Rendili and the Samburu and uh, Lion Warriors about the Maasai. And so every time we turned around, she was right there, you know, aiding and abetting things to, to actually make it happen. Couldn't We could not have done it without her.
2: That's great. And if um, our listeners go to our guests page on our uh, Voice America uh, homepage here, they'll see a column where it says guests, and under that column are all the biographies of our guests, Travis, Vladimir, and Kira. their websites where you can reach them and contact them in case you're looking for help or would like to learn more. And uh, the film uh, Travis just mentioned, Lion Warriors, is the winner of several awards. Vladimir has won several awards and his uh, films have been on National Geographic and BBC, as well as uh, Kira's films. Travis has been involved in filmmaking through a long line of family members, so we certainly have the right crew, and that's why Wild Eyes was so excited and uh, was 100% behind backing this film financially. So, um, as Vladimir was talking about, it's not just about the fees, it is about the people, but it does take money to make these things happen. So you can donate to Wild Eyes Foundation by visiting our website at www.wildeyes.org and uh, help Make this film happen. It's, um, it's been sixty thousand dollars in the last. Uh, two weeks to get this on the ground and make it happen. And it's going to take some more funding to get it, as Vladimir was talking about, into PSAs, into the theaters, into the public relations, and into the world, and especially our targeted audience of China. As um, National Geographic uh, pointed out in their October 2012 issue, Blood Ivory, uh, China is the enemy of the elephant right now, and there really is no end in sight. They're gearing up. So I urge, strongly urge you, our listeners, to read that issue of National Geographic. And then on February 27th, National Geographic will begin airing Battle for the Elephants on the NatGeo uh, channel with the investigative journalists and Brian Christie, who wrote the article and his crew, um, both the visuals in China and in Africa f- following oh let's call it the blood trail the ivory trail the elephant trail so our film is very very timely as um, our elephant populations ours I say it's we who are responsible they live in Africa so sometimes it feels like they're very far away from us but people can help people can get involved and do need to become aware because if It's allowed to go on. We will lose our elephant population in about 10 years. And you can listen to my last week's show for some more background history, thick facts, figures, and numbers of what is happening to our elephants, Asian and Africa, and even those in the zoos across our globe. So that brings us to, um, this film is bound to spark a strong response by many viewers. Some, of course, will not take it favorably, but many will be spurred to take action and get involved. Wild Eyes is the nonprofit advisor and will, of course, provide for the public to contribute. Uh, Vladimir and Travis, will there be a dedicated site for this film that will include a web-based take action and donate now opportunities for viewers to contribute not only to the making of the film but to follow up with elephant conservation? As you explained, there's a lot of political and uh, community work to be involved. How can people help?
3: Well, we um, we will create such a site. Well, let uh, me, let
4: me address that very quickly. I, before we left uh, on our trip to Africa, I showed the script to one of my clients who's a, you know, large advertising agency in Chicago. The owner of the agency said, I like this so much, I will, we will, the agency will pro bono create a website dedicated for this film when it's finished. So I, I graciously accept that and so that, that's <laughs> the plan. So there will Good be a dedicated you. website. <laughs>
2: So I am so tantalizingly teased. When will the film be available to the public?
3: Aha! Uh-huh. Now let's let's back up here a little bit. Um, one of the one of the reasons that, that, that we got donations to do this was because um, the people who wanted to donate said, "Okay, we love the idea, but we want to make sure that it gets seen. What is your distribution network? What, how is it going to be, get seen?" And um, the real reason because it's target at the moment, is China, uh, the Far East. Um, There's a lady named Lisa Rolls-Hegelberg who runs the for Africa and the Far East, the CITES um, outfit.
2: And CITES, for our listeners, stands for the Convention of International Trade of Endangered Species and Flora
3: and Fauna. Right. And she got a hold of the idea, and she said that she wants to showcase it at the CITES convention, in march in bangkok well this is a serious deadline and um we're finishing the special effects today and tomorrow we will burn the necessary type of dvds and media uh... and get them to her in kenya on her way uh... on friday to uh... to bangkok so that's what's driven this whole thing and that's why many people have contributed because they realize that it's going to be hopefully go viral in China
2: and across across the world. It will be posted on, of course. Um everyone who's talking here and our colleagues' websites, a link to the Facebook channel. It will go out on social networking. We're counting on our listeners to pick it up and send it out and share it, like it, tweet it, you name it, your Facebook. This is a critical film and a critical message to get out, not only to the audience in China where the demand for ivory is, but for people around the world to help uh, bring awareness and pressure, if you want to use it that word. But mostly, let's not do the finger wagging. Let's educate and understand that every tusk means a life. And what we're trying to do is save the life of elephants before it's too late. And um, we've been talking about some of the intense preparation that needed to take place in order to bring this film from the concept of Travis's mind into reality. And it's been, what, Travis, uh, eight, ten weeks since we began discussing this?
3: Yes, yes. Um, so we might as well just, you know, get up in the morning and get one thing done. So that's what we've <laughs> been doing. All right? What I also
4: am, I'm excited about is that understanding as of this point it may change, but uh, the CITES Convention may be open with our film, and that the film will also loop for the entire duration of that show endlessly in in the main booth for the you know where Lisa is, so it will be seen over and over and over by what well, we hope you know hundreds of people. So that's a great kickoff.
3: Did, Ian Douglas that's, Hamilton that's has incredible. seen the original. Um, the the early versions and he likes it and uh, we hope he likes the final one because it's in his booth that it would be looping.
2: This is incredible news. I'm not sure our listeners and our audience fully understand the impact this will make. Um... When Travis and I and Vladimir were talking in in the early stages of creating this film, there is a protocol through the different government organizations, both in the U.S. and international, on how these things get out to the public. So it is a fine um, collaboration and cooperation between many governmental and non-governmental wildlife organizations. Uh, concerned organizations that have their protocols to follow so having CITES on board is huge we also have um, the IUCN uh, through the elephant specialists groups and one of uh, Wild WildEyes' uh, very close colleagues. Uh, they're very interested, and it will take people like you, the public, our listeners, uh, to help move this along. Um, we've done a lot of hard groundwork to make this happen, and we can, can barely wait to get it seen. And the first uh, premiere, so to speak, will be in CITES in Bangkok in March. Um, other than the, 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 drafts that have been going around. And, um, it's been requiring some careful decisions where there's, um, I know in editing film we can edit forever. I've done a lot of video editing myself, Vladimir. Um, how do you, how do we all decide when it's done?
4: Well, I guess when Travis says it's done because yep. it is, but, but, um, as always, you know, you start out with a, with a version that has everything and that basically sort of drags on a little bit, but it has all of our... You know, for, for a filmmaker to edit your own film, it's like killing your own children. Yes. Yeah. You don't want to take out the beautiful sunset shot. You don't want to take out the beautiful close-up of the animal's eye, you know, but it must be done because, you know, for the final impact to be better. So we've been shaving it away and adding some effects and um, the reality is that the shorter it is the better it is That's... and well, so,
3: in, in terms also, of, I think we should mention that, that there's no doubt about the fact that um, China is getting on board slowly on this entire issue they they have a wonderful new ad which shows uh, I, it's a big poster in their subways and uh, I think they, they, they deserve credit for what they're doing now um, and it shows a mother elephant And a a sort of a teenager walking across this completely desolate landscape. And the, the, the teenager says to his mom, Mom, I've got teeth. The mom says, nothing. And then the teenager says again, Mom, aren't you happy that I have teeth? And the mom says, nothing. And underneath, at the end, the last line on this poster is, what is the mother thinking? why doesn't she answer it's a, be- it's a beautiful little story I mean, she they're walking across this desolate plane and you can see that she knows that their future is very much in doubt so I think there's there's um there's a worldwide and and someone something of a of a movement that I think we all have to get on board and and uh, the um, um, the basketball player um, has gone around is six foot five all of himself and he's pushing you know I mean? Yes to mm-hmm. um to to awaken the uh Chinese awareness to this. When we had our Chinese um actors in our little film, um, the the elder gentleman said, you know, when I was a boy, um we were told that uh elephants um they took their tusks and replaced them with wooden ones. Mm-hmm. Uh so that they could go on using them. And that they didn't die with- He didn't die when they took the ivory out from them. And he he just said, I didn't know about this. He's just learning.
2: That's a key point that we're trying to get across. Thank you, Travis. Um, You know, to take the hair of an animal or um, sometimes a scent of an animal does not require the death of that animal, but to remove the tusks from an elephant most certainly requires its death. Uh, there's been a lot of work in dehorning uh, rhinos, so to reduce the value of what that animal is carrying around on its face for security purposes. But there is no way to detusk an elephant. In some places, um, scientists and biologists are seeing that tuskless elephants are becoming more and more apparent genetically because it seems that they're evolving to not grow tusks. But evolution is a very, very slow process. And the big question is, will elephants survive to adapt to that process in the next 10 years? No, it's very doubtful. So we're highlighting the issue that every tusk, about 22 pounds of ivory, uh, equals an, uh, an elephant. And when you see a picture of uh, p- pounds and piles and stacks of ivory like the one in two thousand in, in 2011 that Kenya burned, that represents on a daily basis, let's see, we're losing between 67 and 100 elephants a day in East Africa. That totals up to, um, oh, about... 100,000 tons of ivory. That brings us up to somewhere around 200. Uh, excuse me, 150 to 200,000 elephants per day. The population simply cannot uh, stand this kind of decimation it cannot viably reproduce by losing these this many numbers of its species so rapidly it takes an elephant two years to give birth and they don't give birth for another four years to another um baby elephant it's a it's a society very close to our human society elephants aren't ready to mate until they're between 15 and 20 years old they have a lot to learn to grow up to be elephants So we as people have to make a decision on where um, we want elephants to fit in our ever changing world, and that world is being designed by us. We'll be right back to talk about some more with Travis and Vladimir right after this short break.
1: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World. Sabo National
3: Park he turned to the vet and um, Jeremy Ponghorn and said uh, this is great let's let's go get a big bull and dart him and let's get them their footage and uh, the vet said well it's not quite that simple sir because we must be very careful about which elephants we dart if we dart one that's totally healthy and something goes wrong then we will have uh, not helped the process of saving elephants so we're only we only dart ones that seriously need to be doctored or the, on which we're putting a collar. And um, the warden said, well, of course, I agree with that, yes. So off you go with uh, Dr. Ponghorn, Jeremiah, and he'll take care of you. So off we went, and with Kira driving her wonderful um, cruiser, Toyota Cruiser, with all of our film equipment and the tusks and help and camera equipment in it. And we followed the, the, the darting truck of Dr. Ponghorn. And first thing we did, we went to the Voy Lodge where, uh, there's a waterhole there and there were four huge, wonderful bull elephants in their own little sort of tribal enclave. And one of them, the biggest one, had a, uh, looked what looked like a spear wound on his left hip. And, um the doctor suggested that this would be a very good candidate. But at that particular moment, there were about 50 Chinese tourists. <laughs> taking pictures and filming these uh, elephants. And the doctor said, we're not going to put the darting of our elephant on YouTube in the next five minutes all over the world. Uh, So we followed them. We followed the four elephants when they left the watering hole for about three miles away from the lodge. And um, he determined that this wound was serious enough to need doctoring. So he got down on his hands and knees and was filling the syringe out of this very special bottle, we understood that if any of this darting medicine actually touches a an open wound of a human that the human dies and it has to be very very carefully done um, and so then he puts it in a in a the uh, the syringe um, in a dart gun and it has this very strange little pink ball at the end of it so you can see that the dart has actually hit the elephant and um, gets ready to dart the elephant from inside his cut, his truck. Meanwhile, a ranger comes back and says to Kira and to us, she's at the steering wheel, um, now don't get out of the truck because you don't know what's going to happen when the dart actually hits the elephant. They could turn and charge us. Anything could happen. And by the way, there are um, two elephants in the tree right behind two you. Two lions. Uh, two lions. Two lions in the tree right behind you. Um, and Kira looks straight ahead and grips the steering wheel and says, Right now, lions are the least of our worries. It <laughs> all that becomes so, so about wonderful priorities. Be in a situation where that actually meant something. <laughs> um, so the You're island not in is the garden, and he runs off. And go ahead, you pick it up from there, Vladimir.
4: Well, first of all, you have to realize that it's uh, about 1030 in the morning. It's already 120 degrees. It's incredibly hot. The, the sun is just, just pounding. And... Uh, The truck ahead of us with the doctor and his team are not terribly communicative. They told us to follow them using their hands, just kind of a vague gesture, you know, follow us. So then we see them loading the gun and we thought, well, this is going to be it. And then the car gets off the path and gets into the bush. And when you, and not only you go into the bush, but now you are flooring the gas. You are just, you're going because you need, to catch up to the elephants and separate them so that you isolate the one you need to dart. We followed in our truck, and of course, Kira who knows the procedure, uh, knew exactly what to do because we don't drive behind him, little kind of next to him, trying to be like a formation of two vehicles. And um, it uh, took maybe you know one or two minutes, and we caught up with the herd. They of course get spooked, they start running. So now the car with the dart gun is trying to position themselves kind of next to the elephant they need to dart. Eventually, they do it. All of this is done while in motion. Meanwhile, the cars are being beat up by the bush. We're bouncing up and down. Everything is flying in a car. We're going, you know, 35 miles an hour. It's like mayhem. And then uh, the car in front of us stops, and the elephants kind of disappear. They actually took off like bets out of hell, and they actually disappeared for a moment. So the car stopped. The uh, the rangers uh, with doctor, you know, they get on the roof with the binoculars, they spot him. So we start chasing him again. And the thought was that it takes about two minutes for the elephant to succumb to the to the, uh, the to the to the medicine right. And so and where this happened when they shot the elephant, they darted the elephant was in. Um, not a hospitable area for us to shoot. There were a lot of, you know, trees and bush. And I was thinking to myself, well, if the elephant drops here, that's going to be a major challenge for us, how we want to get our shots, because there's, you can't move. But fortunately, the animals were running, and we eventually spotted them, and it took six minutes for our darted bull to lay down. And surprisingly, this is one of those sweet things that I've noticed I've never seen before, the other four elephants... Created a circle around him and touched him with with their uh, trunks as they tried to revive, help, or just be be there. You know, it was kind of sweet. Of course, we couldn't have that, so we kept on uh, coming closer with you know fast speed again to distract them and to make them run away. And not only that, but each in different direction. And so Kira picked up one of the bulls and you know chased him away. And a few minutes later, we all got back by our dotted elephant we were able to go out of the car and now we have 20 minutes. You know, after after weeks of preparation, thousands of miles traveled, you know, hours of on bumpy roads and uh, there you are. Everything basically is the way we planned and now we have 20 minutes, one take kind of a deal. So
2: That's amazing. That's amazing. The gods were with you.
3: Yes, and, 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 and so there. Uh, I, we have a very white tusks that I brought and I wanted the for the film, I wanted the natural tusks of the elephant to be, uh, you know, as clean as they could be. But of course, they're all covered with, with red savo dust, and they over the years and decades they've been um, blackened and dirtied and, you know, permanently in some some ways. So I grabbed a cloth and some water, and knelt down and was washing the uh, these five foot long tusks. One of them, which is lying in the dirt, so I can only get half of it. And the other is fully exposed. So I thought to myself, hey, this, "This is wonderful. I'm actually touching live ivory." And um, and um, I I think that uh, to to sense that, I'd like to communicate that. And, and I stood up, and for a moment, I got to lean against uh, the the flank of the elephant and and feel the, the long intake of his breath and the long exhale. She'll never get to do that again. But I like to let people know that um, I hope the film communicates something of the power of the environment and the animal that lives in it.
4: Yeah. When we
3: when we got out of our cars to start setting
4: up, while Kira, Travis, and I and our two assistants were taking up the tracks and dolly, and you know, because I came up with these shots that I thought we have to have movement, and so we start setting it up. The doctor and his team are tending to the animal 's wound, so there's tremendous you know uh, nonstop action and i'm setting up i 'm putting the camera next to the elephant, and all of a sudden I, I hear this what is this?" And I realize it's the elephant exhaling, and it is something that's very touching because it is deep, very peaceful and 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 quite audible. Exhale, And they, they, in this state, apparently, what is it, Travis?
3: Two
4: two minutes per...
3: Oh, and the exhale exhale. goes on for, you know, 20 seconds. Right. And then there's another 20-second inhale. Yeah,
2: the elephant's heartbeat is three per minute in a sedated uh, situation.
4: Unbelievable. And uh, um, there was something about uh, the elephant being very alive and very tender and um, as much, despite its horrendous size there's something uh, endearing like a like a baby i don't know how to describe it and with with, with the loud uh, inhale and exhale it just it made it so much more special and, and i can imagine
2: uh, there had to be that moment that you had the power of life and death over this elephant and it being darted i do want to make it clear to all our listeners No elephants or animals have been killed or injured in the making of this film. Uh, It was all done through the proper protocol, licenses and permits through the Kenya Wildlife Service and the veterinary department. So it's not like any of us, as Travis and Vladimir stated, went out to specifically bring down an elephant. And when he uses the word shooting, it was a dart gun or otherwise shooting with film. So I can imagine that this was an experience neither of you will ever forget and um, that moment of um, having this huge six to eight ton animal on the ground at your feet and a decision of life and death and we here in the making of elephant in the room are leading toward life of this animal to prevent the death of this magnificent iconic species that lives in only a few places in our world.
3: We have a few
2: few few more minutes. I'm sorry, Travis, we have um, a few more minutes, if you'd like to finish up with something.
3: No, I just wanted to interject there that, that it's not as though I had life and death power over him. Uh, We felt as though he had life and death power over us.
2: That's a very good point, and uh, excellent. That's how I feel whenever I'm in the presence of an elephant, whether it be a a two-day-old baby or a matriarch who's brought her baby back to show Um, her human companions. It's an incredible experience to be that close to wildlife, and it's an experience we have sort of lost here in our Western European uh, world through the um, format of television and wildlife documentaries. We get so close that it feels like it's kind of... um, just all happening at our fingertips. Whereas Vladimir and Travis were saying, it doesn't happen that fast. It t- can take days, months, uh, sometimes hours, you guys were lucky, and years to get footage like this and um, to not interfere and to not pressure the animals. So um, this is an exciting experience. Uh, Let me just reiterate, the film will be um, premiered in CITES in Bangkok in March. And then, uh, we will keep you posted through WildEyes website, and you can always go there now to donate, www.wildeyes.org. Um, you can keep in, in, in touch with me through email, w-i-l-d-i-z-e at wildeyes.org, to find out how things are progressing along. And we will let you, our listeners, and your friends know When we can send this film and get it viral, because that is the medium and the technology today to get it out there to be seen as many by as many people across the globe as possible. So Vladimir and Travis, we have about uh, two minutes. Is there any one specific thing that you would like our audiences to come away with today?
4: Well, I don't know. I was just going to quickly tell you the climax of this the this setup that we get our shots done, and then the, the our hero shot is the elephant rising. And for that, it actually becomes somewhat dangerous because these animals each responds differently. Sometimes they they fall again. Sometimes they wobble. Sometimes they charge and and destroy anything that's in sight. And last year, apparently, a doctor was killed. So we were told in no uncertain terms, nobody's on the ground for the animal rising. And uh, so we were all in our vehicles, Travis actually driving behind the wheels, ready to put the pedal to the floor if the animal was to charge us. And um, the animal woke up, and what happened was so magnificent, you must see the film to see the rest.
2: And There we go. We've had plenty of teasers today, and uh, this film is going to be an incredible experience. We hope you'll all tune in and watch it. It will be available very soon. And, Travis, anything you would like our uh, listeners to come away with today?
3: Well, I'd like to um, have everybody remember Bill Clark of uh, Interpol and uh, Anthony Kurokin of the uh, head of the air wing of the... uh, Kenyan Wildlife Service and, um, wonderful Dr. Gukoya of, uh, of the Chief Vet and, um, and, uh, Jeremiah Ponghorn, the vet that helped us and the warden of the Tsavo National Park and, and just, just the general wonderful warmth and, um, bureaucratic cutting of red tape that allowed us to, uh, to, uh, do what we did over there and, of course, uh, we're, we are all responsible for the situation. It's not just the Chinese. It's uh, it's our understanding of what's happening to the environment of the world and how humanity fits into it that counts.
2: Well, thank you very much. And, of course, I'm going to have to say it and reiterate it. Wild Eyes has made this film possible through the creativity and the hard work of um, Travis and Vladimir. So donate to Wild Eyes Foundation. We will make that donation count. You've heard today where the money goes, how the money is used, and what the money will accomplish on the ground toward protecting elephants and keeping them alive for all of us Together in the future, and I would like to say
3: that I would like to uh, personally comment on how wonderful you have been. Well, thank you, Ellie, and uh, on making this actually possible. And um, so, our kudos to you.
2: Well, thank you. I believe in this project. It's important, and having the right people in the right place, being able to make it happen so quickly is is always has always been my goal. So I thank all of you, the crew, and Kira. Although she's not here today, we couldn't have done it without you. It is truly a collaborative effort, and that's what makes conservation happen. So until next week, I would like to say go out. Touch your wild world, be a part of our wild world. You can contact us through Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn discussion groups, or at wildeyes.org. Visit our website and learn more about our projects. And we'll see you next week on Our Wild World.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week.